is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show this Monday afternoon. Coming up, watch out for those power lines this harvest. It could save your life. And with the winter harvest delayed and the window for getting summer crops sowed rapidly closing, they say the flood in the central west seems to be almost never-ending. We're used to floods here. That's part of living here. Um, it's, it's been an extraordinary long wet event. I, I guess that's the story of this. And it's the damage that comes with that prolonged uh, flooding. Yeah, and this is, a, this is a significantly wet flood year. And it's not just on the floodplain. Um, it's, it's all the country and it's the entire valley and the entire district. Everyone's getting hurt by this wet weather now. You can always send us a text here at the Country Hour, of course, about what's happening in your neck of the woods, the flooding, other issues as well, Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four. Also looking at irrigation, water buybacks shortly on the program. You might have some thoughts about that too. Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up today, well, as we know, this harvest is expected to be rain delayed and the time to get the crop off is likely to be squeezed. This means farmers will be frantically working at top speed 24-7 to get the crop into the bin but essential energy is warning farmers and farm workers to be vigilant about power lines and the risk of electric electrocution we've already heard about a couple of high profile deaths or injuries in the last year and emily smith is the chief human resources officer at essential energy she says they're desperately trying to get the word out as they're worried about this year absolutely michael and you know look we saw this last season as well where where the harvest got compressed and we certainly saw an increase in incidents involving farm machinery and, uh, you know, an escalation to the point where we're very grateful for you having us on, to be honest, because we are we are quite worried about this. We're spending a lot of time working across communities to, to really get the message out around being aware of electrical infrastructure on farm sites and uh, really promoting that people take the time to identify those assets in beginning of the day toolbox talks or, or site safety discussions because they do pose a very, very high risk for people working on farms. And a lot of the farmers will know, oh, yeah, look, I've got some um, some wires over there I need to be careful about because they're quite low. But the workers might not know. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think even if you do, you know, you're on that property every day, you can become complacent. They can almost become part of the scenery. So really taking the time to stop and identify the electricity assets really important and for new people on your site who have you know perhaps no idea that perhaps they've just turned you know traveled into town or they haven't worked on your site before taking the time to identify that hazard with them and you know what the controls are you're going to put in place we do have a really great app it's a free app you can download to your phone or ipad or you can get it on your computer it's called look up and live and it triangulates where you are and it will show you where the assets are on your site so really great you know when you're bringing someone new onto your site to be able to just show them on the app look here's our here's our electrical risk let's make sure we're keeping uh, machinery and equipment away from away from those risks oh okay so the app will tell you what's on your place it absolutely will absolutely so and as i said it's free really easy look up and live um and i 
I guess the title of that tells you the story. We also know that, you know, farm labour is short. Sometimes people bringing family members on who might not be on the farm all the time and or friends. And that's, you know, that's fraught with danger too. They might be unfamiliar with the machinery and unfamiliar with the, the wires and everything. So that that's a, an added risk too. It is. It is. And I know, you know, I know all, all, all property owners would want to keep people safe on their site. Their, their intent is the same as ours, to keep employees and the community safe. So a really simple way of doing that is just taking the time before you start work to familiarise people with your site. What, do that, do that every day? Like do that every morning? Every just a reminder? Day, yeah, yep. absolutely. Our employees at Essential Energy do a toolbox talk every day before they start work to identify hazards and risks uh, related to the work and what controls they're going to put in place. I'm not saying every property owner needs to do that as formally, but something of that nature, particularly with friends, family, new employees, or people who've worked on site for a long time is really valuable. Um, one of the controls that a lot of property owners are, are utilising is the aerial markers. So Essential Energy can attach those markers to overhead power lines. They spin around, they're quite eye-catching. Um, and a really great way to ensure that um, we, you know, those those air, those overhead lines are quite visible. So we install those for free. Um, and SafeWork New South Wales and the New South Wales governments are offering rebates on some equipment, which is purchased by small business and sole traders to make their workplace safer. So those aerial markers can be funded through that as well. We've seen a really good uptake of those this year. Um, particularly on the back of, you know, the ag quit days and hengy field days and those sorts of things when we've been out talking to people. I've seen a few of those around the place and they are quite eye-catching. You, 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 they're easy to notice. The other thing I was thinking too is with the move to bigger machinery, taller machinery, is that, you know, over the years, like in the past where, you know, lines might have been completely safe for, for tractors or, or headers, seeders, uh, now it's maybe not the case. That's that's true. We're certainly seeing equipment getting uh, taller and wider. So, you know, proximity to lines is, is decreasing. You know, we have a standard height for our lines and we, we maintain those through our maintenance program. But The machinery actually that, doesn't have to touch the line either, does it? Because the, the power can arc. Well, yes, that can happen. And I, I think what we do, one of the most common incidents that we see is, is machinery touching the line, particularly like, like spray booms, you know, as they're kind of, um, opened out, uh, you know, and it looks like perhaps the line's quite a distance away. Those those booms are quite long, so actually making contact with with the um, with the electrical infrastructure. Can I just say, Michael, um, you know, if if anyone is in a position where machinery does make contact with overhead power lines, uh, very easy to remember: stay, call, and wait. Stay in the vehicle, call triple O. And you need to wait in the vehicle until you receive the all clear from essential energy employees that the power's been switched off. Then you can exit. Um, so it's far too often we've seen incidents occur because workers on site didn't know how to respond when their machinery contacted the network. Right, that's something to remember. And of course, we have had in the last 12 months, we've, uh, I know of at least a couple of deaths as a result of electro electrocution. So it's, it is happening. It is, it is absolutely happening and, you know, it's just such a tragedy for family and friends, you know, for first responders and, you know, our teams who go on site. If you are in a vehicle and you think it might be touching lines, how long does it take to, for Essential Energy to turn the power off? Uh, I mean, I guess it would depend on location, Michael, but, you know, a call to Triple O, they contact our system control um, and they'd have a crew dispatched almost immediately. In some areas they can control the network 
remotely. Um, system control remotely. Mm. Um, it just depends on the location. You know, we, we cover really all of New South Wales regional and remote areas. So our, our network is incredibly extensive. But of course, these types of calls are prioritised and, and people can be on site very, very quickly. But the main message there is, of course, to remain in the vehicle until your advised electricity is off. And that, that there will save a life. Emily Smith is the Chief Human Resources Officer at Essential Energy. It's 13 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. With widespread rain coming so recently after the big dry, more and more producers are looking to make on-farm changes to boost their land's health. Dozens of farmers from across the Hunter and Northwest have met at Time or more Time or recently, where they uh, heard from a range of speakers who had great success with regenerative and carbon farming. Among them, Stuart Austin, the general manager of Wilmot Cattle Company, who says you need to go in with an open mindset and for the right reasons. Through the use of my grazing, the, the online software management tool that we use to measure all our grazing um, or record all our grazing and measure um, performance. What we're seeing more and more and more is the animal, the paddocks that are um, seeing the highest level of animal density. So, so some paddocks might be grazing at 10 head per hectare when a mob goes through there because of the size of the paddock. And then the next paddock, um, they might be 50 head per hectare. The paddocks that are seeing the, the, the highest animal density are the ones that are um, yielding the most uh, more and more and more year in, year out um, and year on year. Uh, and so that was what's really started to um, pique our interest, I suppose, around where we invested our money. Uh, and so Woodburn is at Wildcrew is where we've seen an incredibly, incredible change over the last three years um, as we have implemented a wire and water program um, which has improved animal density. All of a sudden we're seeing an enormous increase in diversity in terms of pasture um, composition uh, which the more, animal, the more pasture diversity there is, um, the more resilient that landscape is, the more healthier animals are. Uh, there's always something growing, you know, there's summer dominant species that cattle are grazing through the summer and there's winter dominant species there that, are, that cattle are grazing through the winter, so we're, we're getting back to um, more year-round production, uh, which is, you know, fundamentally how, how the ecosystem survived for eons. Let's turn to carbon. A lot of people really interested in your journey there and the success you've had. And like you explained, it's not um, factored in too much to the business, but it's an extra revenue. What's your advice to you know some of these producers here who might be starting down that journey? Uh, do it for the right reasons, as I described there today. I was talking about um, you know one of the things I learned a few years ago when I first started, you know, came to Wilmot and started to spend uh, time at field days with the likes of Christine Jones and Terry McCosker and those sort of people who have been enormous influences on on my life and my knowledge is that um, carbon is the, is the foundation of everything. And so if we can improve soil carbon levels in our soil, um, we'll improve oxygen levels in our soil, we'll get more air in our soil, we'll be able to infiltrate more water. That'll lead to more plant diversity. Um, it'll lead to healthier animals. It'll lead to a more resilient ecosystem, which leads to more resilient business, uh, more resilient people who are um, you know, in, a, in a better frame of mind because there's, there's less uh, risk in the business. So we, d- we focused on soil carbon over the last few years for all those reasons, to improve the resilience of the business. It just so happens that you know, as time has gone by, carbon markets have evolved, and which has given us an opportunity to participate in that and add an additional revenue stream to the business 
um, through through carbon markets, which is which is what we've done. But it, as I said, it's kind of a bonus. It, um, our guys get out of bed every day to thinking about how they can grow more grass, produce more kilos of beef, make more money from beef production. That's their goal. Um, carbon revenue is, is you know, it's in a completely different balance sheet and, and it's, a, it's a bit of a cherry on top really. And just finally Stuart, as this new government looks to its new emissions targets, things like that, agriculture um, keeps getting brought up, what do you see the future looking like? Um, look, I think agriculture is in the box seat to be a real contributor. Uh, we talk a lot in our, in our business, in our group, the MacDoc group, around um, the opportunity that soil carbon sequestration presents for agriculture in Australia quite specifically the red meat industry. All the numbers we've done on our business are demonstrating that our sequestration rates are far exceeding our emissions and so we're well beyond carbon neutral, carbon negative, you know, whatever the world wants us to be. We're taking more carbon out of the atmosphere or CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it in our soils, um, you know, orders of magnitude more than we're emitting from our livestock. Uh, and and we're not the only ones doing that. We just happen to have measured it. We've got some data around it. Um, there are so many other businesses in Australia we're in the same position. We've just got to start measuring it and, and get some numbers and some data behind it. But it's a, that's a massive opportunity for agriculture in Australia to demonstrate that we're actually a big part of the solution. Um, it'll just it will take some practice change in how we do agriculture, how we practice agriculture in Australia. Uh, so we've got to be open-minded. We've got to be willing to consider other ways of doing things. But if you do them. All those things will lead to what I was talking about before in terms of resilient landscapes, resilient businesses, resilient people. Stuart Austin is the general manager of Wilmot Cattle Company who was speaking there to Amelia Bernasconi. And uh, going back to the overhead power lines issue, we've got uh, some texts on that. Uh, this text from BJ says, overhead power lines, surely by now there should be an app which will fire off an alarm when machinery is approaching power lines. When you're in the zone harvesting, hearing an alarm can be more efficient than looking and trying to remember. Those apps, though, are specific to uh, individual power lines on your property, so you can actually see, as uh, she was saying there from Essential Energy earlier, uh, Emily Smith was saying that they do have an app which can uh, show you the map of all the power lines on your property. It's 19 minutes past 12 on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, let's turn our attention now to water because dam money has been reallocated by the federal government so that water can be bought back from irrigators and reallocated to the environment. The federal government won't say how much funding it's committed to a new fund established in last week's federal budget to meet water-saving commitments across the Murray-Darling Basin. But Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek has confirmed the new fund contains money the previous coalition government planned to spend on building dams. National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan spoke with Ms Plibersek and began by asking how much funding the government has set aside for buybacks in this financial year. Well, we have set money aside to um, achieve the, the goals of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and there is a, an amount of money that is listed as not for publication in the budget. That won't be just for buybacks, it will be for other water projects that will help us meet our goals as well. And there's a very good reason that it's not for publication. Like anybody who walks into a negotiation, uh, if they're trying to buy something or they're trying to get a state government to put some money into a plan... If you telegraph how much you're willing to spend up front, you're not going to get value for money. The Water for the Environment Special Accounts Review suggested it could cost up to $11 billion to recover the 450 gigalitres. That's leaving aside the 605 gigalitres that is expected from state-run projects. Is $11 billion a ballpark figure that taxpayers can expect? No, and uh, we're certainly not uh, contemplating spending that sort of money. Nowhere near it. Uh, We think that we can get much better value and, and... 
the reason we can get much better value is because um, voluntary buybacks are on the table, as I have said from the very beginning. Nothing is off the table. Mandatory buybacks? We're not talking about that at all at the moment. We've still got um, a, a great deal of work to do with states and territories about mapping how we get to um, the full implementation of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. I'm expecting to meet with water ministers again early in the new year. Uh, they have promised to look at the projects they've got underway in their states and um, territory and uh, we're very happy to work with them cooperatively on water efficiency projects and other approaches. But voluntary buybacks really do have to be on the table as part of the solution. So when would the Commonwealth re-enter the market for those buybacks? Well, I'm not going to um, be discussing details like that yet. We still have a way to go. We want to be cooperative with the states and territories. If great projects come up, if great offers come forward, uh, then I want to be in a position to take up those offers. This week we saw the Commonwealth scrap um, or postpone funding for dams. Will any of that money be reallocated to water buybacks? Uh, well, in fact, some of the money that has been set aside in the not-for-publication line has come from uh, the can- cancellation uh, of a couple of dam projects and the reprofiling or the, the delay um, of some other dam projects as well. And and the, the dam projects are interesting in themselves. We, we had a government that was in power for nine years, promised 100 dams and built two. One of those was nine gigalitres, the other one was 16. So not two very small dams, in fact, out of the 100 they promised. So they talk a big game on dams, but they are pretty poor at delivering. 2% success rate on what they promised. Okay, speaking of delivery, you're committed to finding 450 gigalitres of water that was promised in addition to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. What's the point of acquiring that water for the environment if it, in fact, can't be delivered due to constraints? We're working with the states and territories very cooperatively on uh, on constraints measures as well, uh, supply measures, on um, improvements to the efficient use of water in partnership with irrigation companies in some cases. We are absolutely uh, looking at all of the ways we can get to the full delivery of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Nothing's off the table. I've said on multiple occasions that the goal is clear, but I'm agnostic about the pathway. Just still on the buybacks, if I was an irrigator that had been considering selling permanent water entitlement, why would I put that on the market now, knowing that the Commonwealth could be about to re-enter and offer a premium? Aren't you concerned that you've already flagged um, something that could perhaps interrupt the market? Well, no, I'm not concerned about that because we've heard claims already from the opposition that uh, the fact that the Commonwealth might be a buyer somehow distorts the market. The opposition were prepared to engage in buybacks when they were in government. In fact, when Barnaby Joyce was the water minister, he spent $80 million buying water entitlements from a fund that was based in the Cayman Islands and set up by Angus Taylor. Do you need the support of the states to buy back water, either to meet the 450 target or uh, other shortfalls across the Basin Plan? I'd like the cooperation of the states to achieve the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which they say they want to do, and I want to work cooperatively with them. They also say they don't want water buybacks. Well, I'm not going to start start negotiating through the media. We've already seen great steps forward uh, since the Labor government came to power. I believe state water ministers, when they say they want to work cooperatively, to deliver. 
Are you still working towards that June 2024 deadline? Well, we are still working to the June 2024 deadline. The previous government tied up the Murray-Darling Basin Plan in brown tape. They deliberately sabotaged the delivery of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Uh, They didn't want to achieve it. They say they do, but if you judge them on their action, they did everything they could to slow or derail the delivery of the plan. Could you negotiate the state's support for water buybacks by offering an extension of one or two years on on the state-run projects? Again, I'm not going to do negotiations like that through the media. Our last water minister's meeting a couple of weeks ago was very successful, very cooperative, Uh, There was a very strong spirit uh, of people wanting to work together to deliver on the plan. I'm going to focus on working quietly, methodically and sensibly with the other water ministers to deliver. Tanya Pulibasek is the Federal Environment and Water Minister. She was talking there to Kath Sullivan. Getting some texts in uh, on uh, the issue. Uh, someone's texted in saying, uh, what, uh, what water buyback and give the money to the multinationals, water owners? What a joke, someone says. Uh, also, uh, someone's texted in about the issue of those uh, uh, high voltage lines uh, and saying that they're not an asset. Bill at the Bite says they're not an asset, they're a hazard and they should be put underground. And uh, someone else has said also talking about safety issues as well as power line safety, there should be an awareness of snap strap uh, safety when pulling out headers. Yes, we have actually seen uh, some people talking about that as being a big issue at the moment, trying to get uh, some tractors and other machinery. Uh, out of uh, out of the uh, out of the mud, so that is a it is a big issue at the moment and can cause uh, injuries and deaths. And also uh, on the weather, someone's saying that the weather uh, in Delegate near Delegate, working 800 metres above sea level, 20 kilometres west of Delegate, the winds are constantly between 40 and 50 k's, and some gusts are over 70 k's. I think, would would that be knots? I think I'm not sure what what he means by k's, whether it's kilometres or an hour or or knots, uh, but he says it's 22 degrees and it's getting wild. That's uh, that's Jim, who's uh, 20 kilometres west of Delegate at the moment, says it's getting pretty wild. 26 minutes past 12 here on the Country Hour. Well, let's uh, stay with water issues, uh, but not from irrigation water. Let's talk about the floods, because for some farmers, this two-year wet period is beginning to take a toll with the winter harvest delayed and the window for getting some summer crops sowed rapidly closing. They say the flood in the central west seems to be almost never-ending. The ABC's Molly Gorman has more. There's an inland sea stretching across parts of western New South Wales as swollen rivers and creeks spread slowly across the landscape. Flooding is not unusual in the Lachlan Valley, where the water can take weeks to arrive and linger for months. But the timing and the duration of this event is exceptional. We're used to floods here. That's part of living here. Um, It's it's been an extraordinary long wet event. Um, Yeah, I guess that's the story of this, and it's the damage that comes with that prolonged uh, flooding. Parts of Hamish Wald's property near Condoblin have been underwater for almost two years, while other paddocks were briefly dry enough to get wheat and oats in, which are now drowning in flood water. It's happened quietly, um, yeah, and this is a, this is a significantly wet flood year, and it's not just on the floodplain; um, it's, it's all the country, and it's the entire valley. Um, in the entire district, everyone's getting hurt by this wet weather now. 
it kind of strikes me that you know that's how we talk about drought you know we talk about drought it just it just slowly kind of dawns on you and then suddenly everyone's struggling there's dust storms and everyone's buying yes. hay and stuff here yep. and, and you know even this is ob- this is obviously the complete opposite but it does it is it kind of like that do you think no you no that, that's a really good description Th- this is this flood this three-year wet event has snuck up a lot more like a drought than a flood Hamish makes it clear he isn't looking for sympathy, but there is no denying this is an unusual event which is taking its toll on infrastructure like roads and fences. It's also hitting bottom lines. Diesel, chemical and fertiliser costs are sky high, making these expensive crops and valuable pasture to lose. Nearby, Guy Schumark estimates he has six to 7,000 acres underwater. Bit of, bit of cropping, bit of wheat country I've got there, under about 1,300 acres I've lost, and the rest is all grass, pasture, it's, um, which is beautiful grass. It was all two, three foot high, but anyway, we'll, uh, we'll lose it, but um, we'll make up for it next year, hopefully. He was hoping to sow 1,000 hectares of cotton for summer, but has scaled that plan back to 200. Getting this winter's canola off might require some creative thinking too. I mean, we got it off last year. It was a challenge last year, but we got there eventually. I mean, everything was downgraded, but, yeah, we still had reasonable yields. And it should be the case this year, but it'd be good if uh, we just had a bit of a spell from this wet weather. It just seems to rain every week. Every 10 days we get an inch and uh, out of your condo. Um, yeah, that doesn't happen. Yeah, you just never, rain yeah, yeah, you never get it when you want it. <laughs> so, but yeah, so summer's going to be challenged, and and the winter halves will be challenged. But yeah, we'll we'll figure it out. After floods in 2016, a drought, and a mouse plague, the weather is wearing a bit thin. I mean, I've only been here 20 years, and um, I've never seen anything like it. And then people who've grown up here haven't seen as wet like this. Like you get the grounds that saturated, it's just. Yeah, five mils like is like we've had thirty. So it's definitely uh, something different. I'm sure it won't continue. It'll it'll go back to dry or average and law of averages. That's how it all works. So. Average would be good. Yeah, yeah, average <laughs> average would be nice. Yeah. Upstream at Bajerabong, closer to Forbes, Melissa Brown says the flooding splits her family's property in two, meaning it's also a logistical challenge. Well, there's a lot of planning has to go into what's going to be on what side of the water when it comes through. And, um, yeah, it's having a lot of impact uh, running through crops that we established crops that we thought were fairly close. And, um, yeah, that's hard to see. But I think also even just a lot of livestock on this side of the water and just trying to keep them healthy. And, um, yeah, there's been a lot of work involved and a lot of planning. Her son can still go to the local primary school, but it's not the case for her year eight daughter. We've been very fortunate that Bajarabong School's been able to remain open um, with the help of um, the SES have been able to bring the teachers out from town each day, which has been fantastic. Um, but my daughter goes into Red Bend in at Forbes and, um, of course, the, the buses aren't running with, through this flood water, all the roads are closed. So um, she's, she's working online, which is, um, yeah, she's doing a really good job of it. But, yeah, uh, we've been well practised since COVID, haven't we, with the online learning, so... Um, yeah, but I wouldn't like it to go on for too long. It's um, uh, We might need to look at her going in and boarding because, uh, you know, kids need to be around kids. They need to have that interaction and it's really important. The water is rushing through the canola and wheat crops a year after the last flood. Yet Melissa and her husband, Tom, refuse to be anything but resilient. Oh, yes, I think we cope with it the best we can. I think, um, yeah, we've had, what, three flood years in the last seven years and two drought years. 
So we've certainly had seen the the all aspects of farming and what's going on. But um, yeah, there's some things that are beyond your control, and and some things that you can control. And I think we we've, we've learnt that if you can uh, focus on the things you can control, and um, yeah, try and stay positive and think of what you have rather than what you haven't got. Um, I think that's really important. Some good advice there. That's uh, that's a report put together by Molly Gorman about uh, what some people are saying is like the never-ending flood in the Central West. It's uh, 28 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Shortly we'll have some weather details, but first some news headlines with Adam Story. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. There's been another hack. This one is a... Uh a ransomware attack on a communications platform used by military personnel and Defence Department public servants. The hackers have targeted uh, Forcenet Communication Service, which is a third-party service, uh, but Defence has been told that no data of current or former personnel appears to have been compromised. Uh, South Korean authorities are warning the death toll from the weekend crowd crush in Seoul is expected to climb. Uh, an Australian has been confirmed as one of the uh, 153 people who were so far confirmed dead. Meanwhile, there's been another tragedy in India with 81 people dead after a uh, bridge collapsed in the Indian state of Gujarat. More than 400 people were on the bridge in the town of Morbi uh, when it plunged into the river below. And still overseas, uh, the former Brazilian president, Luis Inácio da Silva, who's commonly known as Lula, Lula. apparently, mm, which is yes. sort of, I suppose, like Albo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah that's right. Um, he's won the uh, presidential election runoff. He uh, won with uh, just under 51% of the vote, uh, centre of the vote, Monday, 51% of the vote. Yeah. Um, I knew you'd get there eventually. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, the current president, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, has already uh, questioned the integrity of the electoral process, mm. and we're waiting to see what he has to say in his, well, whether it's a... Uh, whether it's concession speech or... or a, yeah. yeah. Um, but not Lulu, not with our controversy too, because he was forced out of office because of uh, talk about corruption. He did a, his... did a stint in the clink mm. for it uh, on charges that were later dropped. He was mm. also president from 2003 to But I think other people did go to jail. For right. corruption, okay. yeah, other ministers and things. So, yep. So there was a <laughs> question marks. Ah, Brazil. <laughs> Look, uh, back, Beautiful one day, perfect just, the yeah, next. Yeah, just uh, back home, um, Netball Australia, well, the Diamonds have secured their $15 million, uh, from uh, the Victorian government's tourism uh, body, Visit Victoria. So they will wear Victorian uh, branding. And, um, yeah, that gives them the lifeline they've been looking for. They keep going. After That's right. Gina pulled out. That's yeah. right. Okay. All right. Thanks for that, Adam. Okay. Adam Story will be back with you at one o'clock, no doubt. Get them no working and yeah, I'll get, uh, get, them, get right. them words out. <laughs> Election result. Yes. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Adam Story there. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. And uh, there's a new system on the way through Gabriel Woodhouse that's going to bring some more rain. Yes, that's right. Indeed, we've already seen a little bit of rainfall um, across uh, western parts of New South Wales. So in the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, um, some of the highest falls were up around the Alpine Peaks, but we also had a few uh, decent falls in the far west of the state with uh, Broken Hill picking up 32 millimetres of rain and uh, out at Wilcannia, 26 millimetres of rain. 
Since 9 o'clock though, we have been seeing uh, more thunderstorms across the far west. At the moment, they're spreading into the Riverina and into the southwest slopes, and uh, that's why we've been seeing some rainfall totals up around the 20 millimetre mark. So for the rest of today and tomorrow, we are expecting this cold front to slowly push its way across the state, um, and that's going to be generating those widespread showers and thunderstorms. And it's fairly likely that we'll see severe thunderstorm warnings being issued this afternoon. Um, we're looking at the risk of you know, uh, damaging to potentially locally destructive winds across the uh, southern parts of the inland, as well as some uh, heavy bursts of rain and large hail so one to watch out for for, for tonight um, and indeed this afternoon and um, that risk will um, shift more towards the northern parts of the state uh, early tomorrow morning with uh, heavy rain risk with thunderstorms over the northwest slopes and plains so a fair bit of rain on the cards for today and tomorrow um, and rainfall totals are obviously going to vary from place to place but it does seem as though the western slopes is going to be where the focus of the rainfall will be with widespread falls around 20 to 30 millimetres on the cards but uh, as you know with thunderstorms uh, you can pick up a little bit more in, in a few spots and it seems as though down towards the Alpine Peaks is going to be uh, one of those uh, areas today and tomorrow that could be up towards the northern slopes. Right, so it is going to move up to the north. Hearing from, uh, I think it was Jim texted in to say that at Delegate at the moment it's blowing a gale. It's some pretty wild weather there at the moment now. So the weather system is going to move uh, through the Riverina and then up into the north, New England northwest, that sort of area eventually? Yeah, eventually. So at the moment, the cold front itself is still um, just moving through parts of South Australia and ahead of it, that's where we're generating those showers and storms. But um, we're also generating some fairly fresh to strong winds across the state. Um, so at the moment, it is quite windy in, in most locations. And as we'll see that cold front move through, we are going to see those temperatures cooling off quite significantly. So across parts of the inland today, we're looking at maximum temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, though, it's going to be more like the mid-teens. So a significant change in, in those temperatures. Um, and as you'd expect, um, it does seem as though we'll be seeing some snow falling down to low levels. So unfortunately, the, the cold air combined with the uh, windy conditions over the next few days is going to mean that wind chill is going to be quite significant um, and wider as a sheep grazier's warning out that covers uh, a fairly large area of, of the New South Wales ranges and, and western slopes. Okay, and then uh, so the 20 to 30 millimetres, but that doesn't uh, take into account any, any thunderstorms. Yeah, so with some of the thunderstorms, we could see some locally higher falls, but um, at this stage, it doesn't seem to be as widespread as what we saw um, with some of the fronts that have moved through over the past sort of fortnight or so. Um, it is just going to be a matter of uh, waiting and seeing how some of these storms develop um, as to where some of the focus of those higher falls could end up being. Okay, well, watch that, uh, watch that system with interest. Thanks for that, Gabrielle. My pleasure. It's 22 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, a Bombala farm has sold for $16.05 million, which is a record price for the Monero. 1,900 hectare property uh, is owned by the Garnicks, and it was sold to a Sydney-based off-farm investor at auction last week and fetched $3,384 per acre. Sam Triggs from Inglis Rural Property says it was above expectations. We, we offered uh, South Bukalong at Bombala, which was a, a quite a renowned property, quite an iconic property on the Monero uh, at Bombala. Uh, it was held by the Garnock family of uh, six generations. So it's quite a significant or a very significant um, decision to sell. Uh, it was uh, offered for online auction. Uh, it generated very significant interest uh, and 
and event effectively sold for sixteen point oh five million. And Sam, the price sixteen point zero five million dollars. How significant is that for the region? Look, I think sixteen point oh five million is for, for one sale in one line is, is potentially an, a record uh, on a per acre rate. And in recent times, one of the the highest um, gross sales in the in the area because. I mean, but you would expect that for a property of this quality. It, it should attract a premium um, relative to probably a number, number of other holdings because it was very well developed and had a high carrying capacity and had very good water and a lovely lovely homestead and, and very good cottages and a very good manager's house. So uh, Bryce Garnock had done a lot of work on fencing. Uh, had done it, He'd adopted more of a holistic rotational grazing program and... Uh, he'd refenced the property, put in a 40 odd kilometres of uh, water, and and done a lot of work on water and reticulation, and, uh, and to adopt a sort of rotational grazing and maintaining ground cover and retaining carbon and quite a progressive uh, approach. So it's um, yeah. Who bought the the property? Uh, look, I, I'm not at liberty to say. Josh, uh, it was a. A family, a private family. They've, they have got some other ruling, uh, rural holdings, and uh, they're off farm. Invest, you know, they're kind of investing as a family. Uh, they like agriculture as a, as a, I guess, an asset class, and uh, they they like ag and rural, rural land. So they they're just expanding their their rural things. They're, they're kind of Sydney based, I guess. Does um, this a sale of this significance across the Monero maybe put uh, the southeast? on the map for, for other areas and, and showcase it in terms of uh, an, an area for grazing that's paid perhaps an area when it comes to land values a bit undervalued compared to other places like the Riverina and other central west of New South Wales? That's a good question, Josh. I think the, I think the Monero does represent uh, value and, and may, yeah, this is a relatively a, a strong price for the area still represents value relative to the rest of the state. I think, I think that's a... And, and for, for some reason, you know, maybe that's part of the Monero. It's, that's the nature of the Monero. But uh, for whatever reason, uh, market drivers and, and proximity to centres and different things. But it is a... Um, I think on a, on, a, on a price basis, yeah, it, re- it represents value on, a, on, a, on the term do- you know, price per DSC or dollars per DSC, which is uh, one way that these types of properties are valued. And... and uh, Probably works out about eleven or twelve hundred dollars, thousand to twelve hundred dollars a DC, which relative to west of the range is is good value. Sam Triggs from Inglis Rural Property there. Bob Stewart's a farmer and councillor on the Snowy Snowy Monero Regional Council. He says it's a significant sale and a new benchmark for the region. My time, I don't think. We've ever seen a, a sale as significant in this in this area. Wallen Bibby's changed hands a couple of times, but um, not at the, the um, money that was involved in South Bucal. Yeah. So, how significant is this sale? This sixteen point zero five million. Oh, it, it would be the most significant sale I can remember. It was a, a very good result for the area. Um, it's a lovely. A lovely property, South Bukalong, and uh, has been recognised over many generations of, in, in a very good belt of country and uh, been well managed for for a, uh, for, for, gen- for a generations and developed up and uh, it bought what probably it deserved to bring. 
Uh, what about this farm in particular? Uh, six generations, um, and now it's been sold to a Sydney buyer, an investor who's interested in in rural industries. What do you think of of that change of hands? Yeah. I- very much mixed feelings. Um, we can't stop how things evolve. Um, the Garney family have been very much part of the uh, the Bombala um, area for, for a lot of generations. And like anything, it's sad when you see that sort of thing finishing up. But uh, families move on and go different courses, and so we've just got to uh, accept that. And um, and uh, hopefully, it, and I'm sure it'll get managed well in the future. Bob Stewart's a farmer and councillor at the Snowy Monero Regional Council. It's coming up to a quarter to one. Well, when you look in the trophy cabinet at the Finlay High School, the awards for agriculture dominate. The Southern New South Wales School's reputation is only growing stronger in the agricultural show world. This year was their most successful year at the Royal Melbourne Show, taking out grand champion beef carcass and interbreed champion ram, making them the most successful exhibitor across all the judging. Andy Brown went to Finlay to meet the students and the teachers whose favourite subject at school is agriculture. It takes a lot of work to get a cow show ready. And Year 10 student Claire Ingram spends every lunchtime in the ag plot with the cows leading up to the big day. So this is Stephanie. Um, She is around 12 months old. Um, She's a purebred shorthorn like all our stud animals. So each year we have a letter and this year's letter was, well, it was actually, it would have been last year's letter when they were born, is S. That's actually superb Tammy over there. We had to, it's superb Tammy. And then that showgirl, Stephanie, who else do we have? We have any more S's? Have Skittles, Lex, Scooter, Sid. Yeah. Yeah, Sizzler. Sizzler. Yeah, so she was born and bred at our school. Finley High School is well known in the agricultural show world and they've just had their most successful year at the Royal Melbourne Show. We were awarded the Grand Champion Carcass of Melbourne Show 2022, which was very, very hard to win in all our time doing it. So uh, that really topped it off. And we were the most successful school or college at the show as well. So we had an amazing show. He went on to be supreme interbreed ram of the show. So the best ram in the whole shed at Melbourne Show. And the best beef carcass and the best beef carcass at the whole show as well that's ag teacher gary webb he works alongside robin o'leary who's been teaching at the school for 35 years they currently have 39 students enrolled in ag from years 11 and 12 which isn't too bad for a school of around 360 students she says the ag program has only been successful due to the massive amounts of support from the local community yes so we run a um a pole dorset sheep enterprise, a shorthorn beef cattle enterprise, and we have poultry. We are in such a great place because of our community commitment and for a long time we we ran 15 to 18 steers and every one of those would have been donated to the by our friendly farmers that we love and um, that, that they provided the wheels to drive our whole program. Although it's not important for the students to bring home ribbons, Mrs O'Leary admits that the prize money is very useful and helps take the program further. Awards that they get, any any type of ribbon or recognition that the kids receive is just like gold because they value it so much and 
uh, to see them smile to get that reward for effort is awesome. Not to say that you know you have to always get a ribbon, but it's great for them to get that, and it, it builds interest and keeps things just ticking along nicely. And not to mention the fact that the prizes that they had at Melbourne Royal this year were great too, very practical. So we won, the Ram won a 500 kilo Peyton's feeder and the most successful school scored us a 1.5 tonne feeder. So, you know, for a school, very practical things that you may not go out and purchase for the school yourself due to funds. Mr Webb also encourages all local farmers to support their ag programs. Quite often the teacher is there and... Um, can feel out of their depth, whether it be knowing how to manage, say, cattle or, or sheep. And there's so many ways in which local farmers or businesses can support their agriculture program. And it isn't easy, as we've said these days, but I think there's a lot that farmers can do to support, whether it's helping with some wisdom and advice or genetics with semen or maybe helping donate animals to keep the program going. It all goes back into the kids eventually and helping develop students into our agriculture um, in Australia. And we know how much need there is to have people move into the industry. So whatever people can do, I think is, is certainly worth it and the teachers would appreciate it. Agriculture remains a popular subject at school and the students say it has a lot to do with their teachers. Yeah, I think that it's very important that we acknowledge our teachers because Miss, Mrs O'Leary and Mr Webb, they, if it wasn't for them, this wouldn't even exist. Like, this wouldn't even be, probably wouldn't even be a topic or we wouldn't even have any practicals sessions in the topic and I think that if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't know as much as we do now and we wouldn't be so well known in the showing community and we are just very grateful and thankful that we have such amazing teachers to let us have this opportunity because I know a lot of schools don't get this sort of thing. That's Finley High School student Claire Ingram speaking there to Annie Brown. It's 10 minutes to one on the New South Wales Country Hour. Shortly we'll have market information, but before we do that, it's neck and neck when it comes to comparing the top sale yard in the state for the number of cattle sold each year. A little more than a 1,000 head of cattle are between the Tamworth Regional Livestock Exchange at Top Spot and the Northern Rivers Livestock Exchange at Casino, which has jumped up to second place. Miranda Saunders spoke to Operations Manager... Bradley Willis. There's a lot of contributors to the driver, Marina, but certainly the market over the 2022 financial year was exceptionally strong. That was definitely a driver for numbers. Um, we had 123,713 head through the yards for the year. Um, and look, certainly the facility itself and, and how it's been transformed over the last five years. Five years ago, we were sitting at number seven in the state. Um, our rolling average for five years was 100,000 head and over the last five years that number's increased and increased and, and we're seeing a rolling five-year average now of 110,000 head. We want to continue to grow that. With so many cattle going through the facility, can you put a, an, an estimated dollar value on what has been sold at the NRLX? Yeah, so last financial year it was in excess of $210 million and that was up almost $70 million on the year before. And again, that was an increase of $30 million from the year prior to that. The conditions of the facility, it's became, you know, the main market on the 
in northern New South Wales. It's the place to sell cattle. It's the place to buy cattle. We've got the facilities. We've got the business structure there. Um, and we've made some good decisions, and we continue to do so. The $15 million upgrade, has has that had a major effect on the number of people that are now looking to casino to sell their cattle through because they can be assured of the animal welfare concerns? Yeah, definitely. Look, there's no doubt that that investment has contributed to these results. And the path that Council took over the last five years, it's a great place for the buyers to be to buy cattle. It's a great place uh, for vendors to come and watch their cattle sold. And, and like you said, it's a great place for the welfare of the livestock. They're under roof. We know that they retain more body weight as they go through the sale process, being undercover, out of the sun, on a soft floor. And then, you know, post-sale care of the animal as well. It, it's, the facility is a massive contributor to these sorts of results. The market has been strong and we still would have produced good results without the facility, but with it, that's made it what it is today and produced these results. And, you know, when we compare ourselves to other facilities in New South Wales, NRLX has consistently improved over the last five years, where some of our other competitors that haven't evolved have gone backwards quite a lot. NRL, NRLX Operations Manager uh, Bradley Willis there. Let's go to markets. To Bendigo Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Slight dip in lamb supply down to 22,200 head. While there was some very good heavy young lambs, a lot of suckers were only borderline for finish and fat cover, particularly those in the trade weight categories. The best heavy lambs made similar money at 232 to a top of $266, but the general run eased by 5 to 15 and sometimes more in a market that lost momentum as it went. Heavy suckers 26 to 28 kilos, 200 to 230 for most, and it took a good 26 kilo sucker to crack $200 today. Where the market was flat was on the wash out trade lambs 22 to 24 kilos at 164 to 188 dollars and the 18 to 21 kilos at 135 to 155 dollars there was no ballarat restocking support for bigger trade lambs to shear today overall most processing lambs were estimated in a ballpark 760 to 800 cents Small store lambs 100 to 125 dollars, and those with more frame 130 to 155. Better day for sheep with heavy ewes up five to ten dollars. Big crossbred ewes 140 to 165. Heavy merino ewes 135 to 158. Light sheep 105 to 128 for most. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Two coral sheep and lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers jumped to 21,600 sheep and lambs with over 9,000 new season lambs on offer. Quality was mixed across all categories. Additional buyers were present and all were operating. New season lambs were 10 to $20 softer and old lambs 5 to 10. Heavy trade lambs eased $14, 175 to 215 to average 790 to 825 cents per kilo carcass weight. Heavies 205 to 226 and heavy export types slipped $15, 209 to 234. Old lambs sold to mixed trends, extra heavy export types, 26 to 30 kilos, slipped $11, 222 to 236. And the over 30 kilo lambs, 240 to 250, lifted $5. New season lambs back to the paddock sold from $75 to 165 
Mutton was firm to ten dollars dearer with additional competition. Heavy crossbred used one thirty-eight to one hundred and fifty-six, and merino used one hundred and twenty-six to one hundred and forty-nine dollars. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. Dubbo sheep and lambs. Good afternoon. Land numbers increased to twenty-one thousand nine hundred and ninety-five as the rain continued to fall during the market at Dubbo. A mixed selection of lands from plain to very good. A larger field of buyers attended, with the plainer lambs selling slightly easier in a few places. Most lamb sales were from firm to $5 dearer in a few isolated sales. Heavy old lambs made from $238 to $299.20. Best of the new season lambs sold from $236 to $248.00. The run of medium tray weight lambs during the, throughout the market made from $181 to $215. Most sales are between $780 to $850 cents a kilogram carcass weight, with a few isolated sales from $860 to $870 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy hoggets with cover sold from $156 to $165 at this stage, with 10,000 lambs yet to be sold and 9,000 sheep. This has been Tim Delaney reported at MLA Dubbo. To Wagga Cattle. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted to 2,820, of which there were 520 cows. Quality continues to be very mixed and yearling cattle were well supplied over all weight categories with the bulk purchased by lot feeders and backgrounders. Restockers were very selective, which was quality related. Light steers, 200 to 300 kilos, sold at 610 to $7. Trade steers were back 10, the better finish, 510 to 570. Feeder steer prices fluctuated wildly at times. Medium weights, 456 to 584. The lighter weights, $5 to 658. Trade heifers were back 10, 450. 50 to 548. Feeder heifers, medium weight, were down 5 cents, 450 to 548. The lighter weights, 490 to 550. Heavy steers to the processors, 508 to 530. Bullocks were down 40 cents, quality related, 465 to 482. To Forbes cattle. Numbers doubled this sale with agents yarding 1,124 head. Quality was improved from the previous sale with a good offering of well-bred cattle available along with the plane of secondary lines. The usual bars are present competing in a dearer market that was related to quality. Yearling steers lifted with processors paying from 480 to 560 for middle and heavy weights. The plainer types to feed received from 488 to 517. The heifer portion was also dearer on the better bred finished types. Processors paid from 470 to 564 with a B muscle reaching 592. Those to feed sold from 470 to 548. Heavy steers and bullocks reached 510 cents, with grown heifers ranging from 440 to 492. Cows held steady to a couple of cents better, with heavy three and four scores selling from 405 to 420, with two score from 375 to 400 cents a kilo. This is Van Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. Tamworth cattle. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted for Tamworth to 1310. Good quality cattle up 966, with rain events ceasing in the short term. Cows increased in numbers and quality, and there was a good selection of young cattle for feeders and restockers. Most exporters attended, as did restocker interest to host solid competition throughout. Weaner steers to 665 and 628 to heifers. Light yielding steers to restockers 586 to 648. Light feeders to 576. Medium feeder steers 408 to 558 to see planar types affect the overall average. Heavy feeders to 544. To dearer trends, light heifers to restockers 500 to 580 and medium feeders to 570. Heavy feeders sell to a dearer trend 465 to 524 and processor heifers to 520. Heavy ground steers dearer 449 to 480 
Heifers also dear 410 to 460. Medium cows 340 to 367. Heavy four school cat cows to considerable rises 380 to 420. Heavy bulls to 370. Stephen Adams, MLA. It's news time.